This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Have a holly jolly Christmas. It's the best time. All right, not December. Yep, we are in February, but uh, Walmart's saying, what a great Christmas. Uh, and as a result, you've got investors snapping up their shares today. Uh, stock rallying after reporting its best holiday quarter in years. Let's get into the quarter with Matthew Boyle. He's U.S. retail reporter at Bloomberg News with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So, Matt, really good yeah, quarter. It certainly was. It was a blockbuster, as one uh, analyst said. We kind of knew they were going to do well this Christmas. There are a lot of signs. There are a lot of analyst upgrades. Uh, we also knew that the food stamp payments, which a lot of Walmart uh, shoppers rely on, government benefits, uh, those February payments came in in late January, which means they came into Walmart's fourth quarter. Um, and that actually boosted their same-store sales figure by uh, 40 basis points. So we knew it was going to be a good one, but I think even better than some people expected. Yeah, with the national retail sales figures in such a big disappointment, how does Walmart beat so big? Because that number is, yeah, there's something going on with that number. Cool quirky, I mean, the Walmart guys wouldn't comment about it on the record, really? but you can kind of tell they were looking at that number and their number and saying, wait a minute, something's not right here when the world's largest retailer has a you know, blockbuster. Exactly. And remember, though, that government finger was just December, though. So I think there was a shred, a kernel of truth to it in that the holiday season started earlier than ever. You know, people were buying Black Friday stuff in October. Right. Um, and so, and then we had a great Black Friday and then things did slow down a little bit in December, but not nowhere near what those government figures showed. So look, Walmart had a good, really good holiday season. Target had a really good holiday season. There were some, you know, some slip ups, though. Macy's and some others uh, didn't have a very good quarter. And you dig into that into your story, because how much of what happened at Walmart was because of food items, you know, selling food items and also bringing people in who exactly. ultimately bought food more. Food gets people in the door. You don't buy toys every day, but you buy bananas and milk, you know, every week at least. So, right. um, the, the, you know, the retailers like Target, Costco, Walmart, the ones that have a food offering, uh, that just drove people in the stores. And if you're already in the store at Walmart, you know, getting your, your weekly grocery, oh, there's a coat. I'll pick that up. Oh, there's a gift you know, for Cousin Timmy. I'll pick that up as well. And that's why you know, that really helped them. It wasn't just about the battle for the Toys R Us shopper. I just, well, let me just follow yeah. for a second because sure. I'm curious about the, the online food, food strategy yeah. over at Walmart. How well is it going? It's working. I mean, you, it's rare that you know we're going to be uh, unadulterated in, in our praise here at Bloomberg, but it is working. I mean, yeah. they've got 2,100 stores right now that have curbside uh, grocery pickup where you don't have to go into the store, and that's a big problem with a lot of people. You know, they're, they're, they've got three kids in tow. You've got to get to soccer practice. Nobody has time to go into a Walmart, but if you just zip into the parking lot, they throw your groceries in the back, you zip out, then you can get on with your life. So right. they're expanding that from 2,100 stores to 3,100 by the end of this year. They have home delivery in already in 800 stores, and they're going to double that this year. Now, the home delivery is costlier, though. That's what really hurts their margins is when they're spending money or working with partners 
partners, you know, to right. get those groceries to your doorstep. It's into the margins. Yeah, right? there's well, there's fees involved, so the cu- customer will eat up some of that. It'll help Mar- Walmart a little bit, but Walmart would much prefer you come to the store, pick it up in the curbside, maybe even grab something else while you're there. But that's the that's the best model for them. I think about the curbside commercial that you saw during the Super Bowl, right? That Walmart yeah. put out there of everybody kind of throwing. They had some fun with it, but <laughs> exactly. right, everybody yes. throwing the groceries throwing things into in the, the trunk. Yeah. That was really their coming out party, saying this business is working. We're yeah. going to spend you know gobs of money on a really splashy ad with all these cool cars, the DeLorean from Back to the Future yeah. and stuff, um, and put it in prime time. And it did well because the biz- that, that part of the business is working for them. Do they offer any incentives for consumers to pick up curbside as opposed to offer, um, having well, it delivered there's to no fee, There's no fee. There's okay. an incentive. You know, if you want to get your, anything home delivered, uh, grocery, you know, there's, there's fees involved usually. Now, if you're spending 35 bucks on walmart.com, they usually will give you two-day free shipping. That's like the standard these days. You know, Amazon started it. Everybody kind of copied that. That's like the threshold. If you buy 35 bucks worth of stuff, we'll get it to you in two days. But for groceries, you know, and if you want to deliver to your, to your home, you're going to have to pay a fee. So the incentive, yeah, is that, you know, if you come up to the curbside and they, Walmart claims that the scores they get on customer satisfaction for mm-hmm. this curbside uh, service are the best in the history of the company or anything they do. And it's not that surprising because, you know, compared to what? Going into the Walmart, which right. a lot of people don't want to do, don't have the time to do. <laughs> of course, just pulling up curbside in your DeLorean or whatever you're driving, you know, well, is, is fun. That's what I wanted to ask you. Are they expanding their customer base beyond kind of the core Walmart shop? They are getting, yeah, they said that today and they've said it in the past um, they bring in what they call incremental customers people who have not shopped at Walmart before and that's key for them you think everybody shops at Walmart but no Mm-mm. it was funny they, they even when they first piloted this online curbside pickup in Northwest Arkansas where they're based they even brought in new customers. And you'd think, huh. who doesn't already shop at Walmart in Northwest Arkansas, except for the guy who runs the local Target store, maybe? You know, but so even there, they're bringing in. So they are bringing in new customers. And what they also, they're spending more. When you shop at Walmart online and in the stores, uh, those shoppers spend twice as much as your average Walmart in-store shopper. So huh. um, they're bringing in new people. They're spending more. You know, that's working for them. I have nothing else to say. Oh, you do not. <laughs> All right. What about toys, though? I want to ask you about toys. Yeah, toys you did, did well, yeah. yeah. I mean, Especially um, with Toys R Us kind of go to the wayside. Exactly. The, the Walmart CFO told me today, he said, you know, they saw their big opportunity to grab market share. They went after it hard. They had a lot of... Uh, uh, 30% increase in the toys available online. They had all right. these in-store demos. You can play with the toys. They had this YouTube sensation, this kid Ryan, who you know has built a juggernaut of a business just basically trying toys and telling people what they think. And I'm sure my kids watch it all the time. <laughs> so they had him involved and some exclusive stuff there. That really worked for them. Um, but again, I mean, it also, Target was selling tons of toys. Yeah. Even Best Buy had toys. Yeah. This and I'm just talking about electronic gadgets. You know, They had Barbies and stuff in the store. Are they just quickly 15 seconds, though, having to pay workers more to, st- to bring in workers? I'm wages are wages. still weighing on them. Yeah, it's yeah. not just the e-commerce costs. Uh, transportation and trucking is costing them more, and wages are going to cost them more this year as well. So watch out for those margins. All right, good stuff. Thank you sure. so much, Matt. Thank no you, problem. thank you. I know you've had a long day. Matt Boyle, he's U.S. retail reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. definitely have a bit of a dovish fed no doubt about it and we'll find out more and they're thinking behind uh the members of the fomc uh committee we get those meeting minutes tomorrow let's 
bring in Putri Pasquale, Managing Director and Partner at PAMCO, Pacific Alternative Asset Management, joining Vince and myself on the phone in Irvine, California. Uh, Putri, nice to have you back here on Bloomberg Radio. Let's get it out of the way. Let's talk about that FOMC uh, meeting minutes that we're going to get tomorrow at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. That's from the January 30th uh, Fed meeting. What will you be looking out for? Hi, good afternoon. Happy to be here. I will be looking out for languages on two fronts. One is to look at where the balance sheet reduction path is. So that's one lever to pull. Another um, will be on where the Fed is regarding rates. And there are conflicting information in the market. Um, Wages, employment and payroll are all have been pretty strong. Um, I don't expect them to put a lot of uh, weight on retail softener, retail softness as of the end of the year. But it'll be interesting to see where they are on softer inflation number and moderating growth expectation. And the market is certainly expecting um, the Fed to stay put for yeah. the rest of 2019. That retail softness is funny, especially after we just had a conversation on Walmart and what a blockbuster uh, Christmas they have. So there's there's some splaining to do, if you will. Vince, come on in on this. Yeah, on the on the balance sheet, I'm curious if you your take, I mean, the flip that, that happened so quickly from the last meeting to this one, and that almost a, a feeling for me anyway of a bit of a panic that they might be reducing that balance sheet too quickly, and yet we're still looking at a $4 trillion balance sheet. How does that, how does that feel to you? That is an interesting perspective because if you wound back the clock, they were going to uh, go down from four and a half trillion to you know two to two and a half trillion within two years, and that you know you could do the math. That's going to be a fairly you know um, fairly speedy reduction of balance sheet, and the fact that they're at four trillion right now. Um, they're behind for, uh, you know, compared to where they should be considering that schedule. So that in itself um, has been a fairly dovish sign. And it gives me almost a sense as to uh, a big signal as to where the Fed is. And and I think they certainly recognize that continued uh, plan on balance sheet reduction uh, will have a tightening impact on the economy. And, and I'm curious if your take, because there was a lot of talk after the Fed spoke or after they sent their d- dovish, dovish message, a lot of other major central banks did the same. Do you think there was any conversation there or it was just everybody picking up the same ball or getting the same signals? I think everybody, all the uh, central banks globally are looking at where global numbers, uh, the growth numbers are and, you know, Previously, it was a, there's a lot of talk about uh, global growth, you know, synchronized global growth, and this is the other, you know, it's, it's moved exactly the other way around. So it's almost synchronized global slowdown. So that seems to be the driver behind a lot of what the central banks are, uh, you know, pegging the policies to, and that's uh, likely behind the Fed's change of heart. Hey, one thing I want to ask you about, and this was a story that caught my attention. Uh, it was among the most read on the Bloomberg today, uh, Putri, about how stock traders are paying up for quality balance sheets just as credit investors rush to the weakest balance sheets. How do you make sense of that? So there's been certainly so much pressure uh, to search for yield. Uh, last December provided as a very interesting case study uh, because the the, the sell-off that happened, it's very retail and, and tax loss selling driven, uh, gave some credit investors an opportunity to rotate up uh, quality, meaning that you could sell your weaker positions, you could swap those with better quality names and not give up and yield. But that's, you know, that's short-lived. Um, 
and that happened while a lot of uh, investors are out on you know their Christmas vacation. Going forward, it remains to be seen about you know the pressures that credit investors are facing about you know thinning yield and loosening covenants. Um, I think it remains it, it remains to be seen where people are going to shake out. But for now, um, the investors who have and on the credit side anyway, the investors who have access to unique sourcing. Um, and have the ability to look at credits that are a little bit more complex, perhaps. Um, so on the surface, maybe they look a little bit different, but if the underlying businesses are solid, um, that's where people's returns are going to be differentiated going forward. All right, interesting. And I know that uh, you say that uh, flows to U.S. Uh, investment grade and high yield are, are remaining healthy. So uh, that's interesting to see some of those trends. Hey, Putri, great to get some time with you. Thank you, thank you. Putri Pasquale, she is Managing Director and Partner at uh, Pacific Alternative Asset Management, PAMCO, uh, joining us on the phone from Irvine, California. We'll have to see you know, what the credit markets hold for us for the rest of the year. Yeah, and so the interesting take also into this year, emerging markets have been trading very well, and that sort of buoys where the credit markets are. So they kind of run hand in hand. We'll see if that trend continues. So talk about spending a lot of money. Uh, the Murdoch Media Empire built up as a result of an epic buying spree over several decades. Well, now... A next generation of Murdochs has to decide what to do with that money. So let's get into this great story written about in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, written by Anusha Sakui. She is Bloomberg News entertainment reporter. She joins us from her bureau in L.A. Anusha, this is really a smart, smart story that I know you and Felix uh, Gillette wrote. Tell me, though, kind of the basic premise of uh, the story. Well, um, as you said, I've got to give a shout out to my colleague Felix Gillette. Um, you know, we're at a kind of turning point in the Murdoch empire because uh, soon we will see this transaction between Rupert Murdoch uh, as the leader of uh, 21st Century Fox and Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, coming to a close, whereby um, Disney will buy $71 billion worth of assets from uh, Fox. Uh, it's going through some final uh, regulatory hurdles in Brazil and, and uh potentially Mexico. <clears throat> we don't know when those will close, but when it does, we'll see a new Fox spin-off. And that Fox will be run by Lachlan Murdoch, and it will be focused on live uh, events, sports, news, um, you know, the ratings busting, uh, Fox News, and broadcast. Um, and it will be a shift away from, you know, uh, the movie business um, and cable network uh, television that, um, you know, it's FX and Nat Geo that was being run under... Um, Lachlan's brother, James. And it's going to be a much smaller business, right. more nimble, right. um, but that's going to be a new era. For, uh, for the back, uh, years ago to a show that was on ABC called Wide World of Sports. <laughs> it was live sporting events from around the world. Is, is right. this something that they're going for? In a big way. Um, you know, they've been spending billions on live sports. Uh, you know, uh, the you know Sunday night football, Thursday night football, uh, uh, WWE, um, SmackDown. Um, so, you know, they've got these shows coming up and um, it's costing them. And investors have punished them a little bit for that. Um, but, uh, you know, even though it's still sort of held within, you know, 21st century folks, if you want to think about it quite technically from a shareholder perspective. But, you know, when 
this new company spins off um you know they'll be really sort of crystallizing you know a, a new company um and seeing you know where it'll trade at and what it'll be valued at and it's a real bet on you know what they see as being something different and you know i had been talking to people you know privately within within this world and you know what they kind of what the fear is is that you know stuff like movies and shows you know with all these streaming companies you know with the background of this is a is a war over content like mm. um you know that we're seeing netflix and disney and at&t and comcast all getting into is that a lot of this content is, is maybe becoming commoditized and is there a way for um them to differentiate themselves by having um live sports and uh, news you know like fox news you know we've seen you know you just had the president on he has continued to spur interest from people in news. And we've seen so many companies thrive off that, like the New York Times. Um, and, you know, Fox News has been a huge beneficiary and it will be an it was a major generator for, for 21st century Fox and will be an outsized generator right. for the new Fox. Hey, listen, uh, Anusha, just got about 30 seconds left here. J- so Lachlan's going to be, you know, bolstering the existing portfolio of businesses. James, meantime, just quickly, is going to be doing what? Well, we what? know that he's, he's launched a new fund. He'll have, you know, maybe $2 billion, uh, you know, in t- theoretically, you know, within the Murdoch Family Trust that will be his in the future. Um, that, that, that money will be split. The proceeds from the, the Disney sale will be split amongst the six children. Um, and he'll have that money to invest maybe in technology. We don't quite know yet. They're very private. He's being very private and quiet on that. But we know that he's set up a fund and that he'll be investing his money. Right. Fascinating. And we're talking about lots of money. And then, of course, what Elizabeth is up to. To find out a little bit more about what she's doing, just check out the story at Bloomberg.com. If you're on the Bloomberg, it's also there as well. Anusha, thank you so much. Anusha Sukui, she's an entertainment reporter at Bloomberg News. Joining us from LA, uh, LA Bureau, you can also check her out on Twitter. I come on them. It's a fascinating story today about how self-driving cars may one day kill auto insurance as we know. You know this is a topic we've been talking about, like how, wh- what impact will be on the kind of the auto insurance industry. Um, Paul Tullis is a freelance journalist. He covers science and technology for Bloomberg News as well as other media outlets. And he joins us uh, on the phone from Boulder, Colorado. Uh, Paul, uh, I remember being at an investment conference and officials were talking about how we would approach the insurance industry as we increase saw more and more self-driving cars. Your story gets into this. Tell us a little bit about uh, uh, your reporting. Right. Well, uh, auto insurance accounts for the largest share of revenue for the big insurance companies. And those policies, of course, are primarily sold to drivers. So with automated vehicles, the question that companies are grappling with now is, if the driver goes away, what do drivers need with insurance? And the answer is they don't, but the manufacturers and the companies that provide all of the sensors that go into automated driving will. So it's going to be a very different outlook for them and uh, somewhat more complicated as they need to figure out questions like if your LIDAR goes on the blank, who's responsible? Is it the manufacturer of the car uh, who bought the LIDAR from somebody who made it? Is it the maker of the LIDAR? Is it the driver if they didn't get the latest firmware update for their LIDAR? And uh, some of the people I talked to are thinking that government is going to need to step in and, um, and handle this with regulation. 
government stepping in that should solve the problem without a without any problem at all actually i thought yeah, that was no the question. most fascinating part of your story is that it gets into such a quagmire of almost a, a court issue if there is an accident it's it's such a bigger deal uh when you take the human out of the out of the story right and that's hard to determine how that's going to play out because in the accidents involving uh automated automatic vehicles that are being tested right now They've all been settled out of court, so those are under seal, and nobody really knows how those uh, deals are going down. Um, but insurers are talking to auto manufacturers and the companies that provide the suite of technologies to um, to figure out how they might insure those companies instead of drivers. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. You talk about specifically an individual, Dan P. Tell us a little bit about about him. He's a venture capitalist, and he's actually created a company, correct? That's kind of looking into this and and uh, you know offering up insurance. Yeah. So Dan, uh, a few years ago, was looking to buy a Tesla Model X, and he called his insurance company to find out what his rates were going to be, and they Love quoted this. him a price that he <laughs> found to be outrageous. And uh, he realized that that was because they didn't have enough data on the uh, driving behavior and the accidents and stuff that um, that cars with automated features were getting into. So he decided to start a company of his own that would provide insurance to uh, drivers of cars with automated features. And so they have an app. They have software that they put on the car. They dive into the API of the manufacturer and they can determine when the automated feature is being engaged and then offer discounts based on that. Curiously though, they only offer discounts for automated features being engaged and of course it's possible to engage those features in situations where it's not necessarily safe. Hmm. Um, you know, Tesla and the others, they say, only use it when you're on the open freeway and there's not a lot of traffic and stuff like that. So if somebody is, you know, trying to uh, to engage their automated features on the Cross Bronx Expressway at 4 p.m., it seems like maybe they should get a hike in their premium right. rather than a discount. Can I just say, though, when you talked about Dan Pete, your story kicks off this way. When he went to get a, a auto insurance quote when he bought his Tesla, and they quoted him $10,000 a year, right? So, I mean, unbelievable. And a lot of this has to do with data accumulation at this point, right? As we get more and more data on these self-driving cars, insurance companies will have a better idea on how to price all of this. Exactly. And I've already heard from readers who were saying, hey, I have a Model X and I didn't have to pay that much. Mm. And it seems that the insurance companies are getting more data from those cars. And what Pete's company, Avenue, is going to be doing is getting the data directly from the vehicles themselves. So they don't have to wait to, you know, see how many accidents these cars are getting into. They can see not only whether they're getting into accidents, but how they're being driven, right. whether they're driving, you know, 85 through a 35 mile an hour zone or what. So, I mean, I noticed in another part of your story, it says that uh, there's an estimate that by 2035, there will only be 23 million autonomous vehicles on the road. How is that going to work when you have a driverless car, if you will, with a car being driven by a human. I've heard anecdotally that where these things have been tested out is that y humans know that the driverless car can't make the turn ahead of them, so they're just kind of cutting them off and things like that. Just got about 30 seconds. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of uh, overlap where we'll have driverless cars and cars driven by humans. 
And of course, if a Tesla with autopilot can't see around the corner, you know, it's going to get T-boned by somebody running the red light or something. So people are going to probably want to insure themselves as a passenger as well. Yeah, and I love that uh, there's some, uh, it was one of the sources you talked to talks about kind of speculating on mergers on the horizon between insurers and automakers. You do wonder about this new world auto, auto, auto or order, if I can say it, uh, when it comes to self-driving cars. Apparently I can't say it. Somehow I feel like it's going to cost me more money. <laughs> Paul Tullis is a freelance writer. He covers science and technology for us here at Bloomberg News uh, and other media outlets. Joining us on the phone from Boulder, Colorado. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Uh, Carol Masser, along with Vince Signorella, he is joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He's our Bloomberg News Global Macro Strategist in for Jason Kelly on this Tuesday. Let's also bring in Sean Cruz, Manager of Trader Strategy over at TD Ameritrade, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. And as Charlie mentioned, Vince, we've got stocks pretty much up near their highs of the session. Little change, but kind of holding on to some of those gains. Yeah, a little bit of a fade in the averages, though. But, uh, you know, we're still dealing with the hope of a trade deal and not an actual yes. trade deal. So Fingers there's crossed. only so far we can go, I think, on uh, on hopium at the moment. <laughs> hopium. And at least they're still talking. Hey, Sean, uh, nice to have you here. So talk to us a little bit about when you look at this trade, uh, what are the key kind of uh, things that you're watching that could provide either some more upward momentum or put some pressure on equities? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. I, right now, what I'm really looking at is, is VIX. That's kind of the most surprising move I'm seeing out of here. I would not have expected to see VIX below 15 until we had an actual uh, resolution or, or some sort of certainty out of these trade discussions. We still haven't gotten that. I, I think it really at best what they could be pricing is that a lot of these tariffs that are due to the, kick in on March 1st are going to get kicked down the road. Wait, having said that, I mean, the S&P has rallied 18% since Christmas Eve. I, you're not surprised that the VIX has... You know, similarly gone way down. Like, I, just to the extent that the VIX is really incredibly forward-looking in terms of uncertainty or, or fear moving forward, and there's so much uncertainty out there, so much, so many things that we still need to get a little bit more clarity on. And you know, we always like to talk about uh, you know U.S.-China trade discussions, but we also have Brexit. We've got some other things out of the EU. There's plenty out there that we need to get a resolution out of that we really haven't gotten much certainty. So it's just surprising me to see the VIX pull back, like I said, below 15. I could see it hovering around 16, but pulling back this low, I, I was not expecting that. So, Hi, uh, Vince Signor. How do you feel about the, uh, the gains in the Treasury market today? It seems like if we're expecting a China trade deal, I would have thought yields might have been a little bit under pressure and, and we'd see Treasury sell off a little bit today. Yeah, Instead, we get the opposite. 
Yeah, that's one thing where just looking at that with seeing the VIX pull back, which gives you a little bit of an indication of risk on, but then you're also seeing treasuries rally slightly, which is usually indicative of more of a risk off play. I think there could be some of that has to do with the Fed and we continue to see lowered expectations for the Fed making any aggressive policy moves in 2019 that could be pushing some money into some of those those bond trades. But I think you're going to see the VIX or bonds, one of those break one way or the other because it's just not usual to see this relationship see those two moving in opposite directions if you're trying to get some read on risk so a, a question about uh, td ameritrade i understood from a colleague of mine that there was a big influx of fx trading towards the end of the year as the equity market sold off now we're sort of seeing a, a reversal of that as equities rally have uh, have you seen less volume in the foreign exchange markets or or is it still holding up we, we do see some some spikes in volume, but usually that that has to do a lot more with uh, big movements or, or kind of large movements based off of what's going on with Brexit discussions. That's when we start to see the euro, U.S. dollar, the pound, U.S. dollar start to move around quite a bit, and that is where there's a, a little bit of a pickup in our in our forex trading business. What kind of flows are you seeing from investors? Are they putting more money to work? Are they looking to put you know, kind of park money and safer investments. What are you seeing, especially if you consider the bounce back we've seen, if I'm just talking equities, you know, we've had guests come on and say, this is it for the year and we're going to just see volatility, but we're probably not going to find much more momentum to the upside. So are people saying, I'm happy with these gains. I want to avoid losing any money for the rest of the year. Well, we so actually we've put out our uh, TD Ameritrade IMX, which measures uh, sentiment from based off of uh, activity in our client base. So looking at January, this is actually the first time in three months where our clients were net buyers of equities. So they were actually shedding some risk going into the in the end of 2018. To start out 2019, they came in. They were buying. It, it was it was fairly light buying, but they were going out there and, and making some purchases. What was interesting was some of the the most heavy buying we saw from a sector standpoint was a lot of money going into healthcare, and we've seen a, I think a, a lot of momentum trades uh, taking over in the healthcare space. Uh, so I think that's been one interesting piece. They were actually. Um, sellers of financials, and we also saw them uh, sell a lot of IT names in, going into January. So we're almost out of February, and it'll be interesting to see what they did in February if they did profit take, as we saw a lot of these names really make some, some pretty strong gains to start out the year. That's, that's pretty interesting. You're seeing a lot of money going into healthcare with all of uh, politicians getting on the bandwagon looking to cut drug prices. You would, you would think that would hurt the health industry and, and scare people away from that sector. Well, there's a, there's there's that aspect of when you do start to see that. I think that's the one thing you could get agreement from both sides of the aisle on is is uh, some of what we're hearing about health, drug pricing. But one other thing we've seen in that space is a little bit of a pickup of of deal activity and a lot of M and A. And whenever you start to see a lot of M and A, a lot of deal activity in a space pickup, you see multiples expand across that sector. So I think that was one thing that started to make that that initial drive higher. And then you start to see clients come in with that are doing a little bit more of that, that momentum-type trading strategy, they're going to come in there and, and continue to put money to work. But that was what we saw in January. It was pretty pronounced in January. So, like I said, I, I think it'll be interesting to see 
once we get our February TD Ameritrade IMX report, if we do see clients taking profits in there. Yeah, that, actually, I'd be interested to see that as well, especially we've started off the year very similar to 2018 with uh, a lot of folks talking, you know, buy emerging markets, sell the dollar, um, you know, the, the risk rally, the China trade deal is going to eventually happen. Um, so far, that trade has been working uh, with a little pullback in the beginning of February where that trade reversed a little bit right after the FOMC, but it's it's kind of picked back up again. Do you, do you see that continuing uh, to going forward? Do you see people searching for yield and heading into the EM space and, and avoiding the dollar? I don't know that it's necessarily, uh, you know, they're avoiding the dollar. I think some valuations got pushed pretty low. But when we start to see our clients seek exposure to emerging markets, they're actually using some sort of exchange-traded product. Typically, we don't see them going out there and trying to pick specific credits or, you know, uh, picking specific names. They usually want just a more broad general exposure to that to that uh, asset class. Uh, I haven't seen it, it being very pronounced in our client base. And I think that when you're looking at the dollar, it moves or seeing out of the dollar. You, you just want to just talk about what the Fed's doing, but what other central banks are doing around the world is something that I think can actually prop up the dollar somewhat. And that's just because we're continuing to see general weakness in a lot of these global economies, and that's causing their central banks to have to be a little bit more accommodative. When you start to see strength, relative strength remaining in the U.S. economy, we're starting to see some cracks, but not to the extent we're seeing overseas. Right. It gives our, our central bank a little bit more uh, uh, breathing room to not have to, to be as accommodative as others. And I think that can be supportive of the dollar. Sean Cruz, thank you. Manager of Trader Strategy at TD Ameritrade on the phone from New Jersey. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.